0: I'm Susie Wiseman. On Jacobin Radio today, we look at urban politics from Barcelona to Chicago. Isidro Lopez, a Podemos member of parliament in Madrid, joins us with an analysis of the standoff between Catalonia and the central government in Madrid over the slated independence referendum to be held October 1st, a standoff that resonates well beyond Spain. The central government has banned the referendum and the constitutional court has declared it unconstitutional. But tens of thousands have taken to the streets of Barcelona, demanding the right to vote. We'll get Isidro's take on the referendum, but more broadly on Spanish politics, Podemos, nationalism, and more. We then talked to Troy La Ravière president of the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association who's beginning his campaign against Rahm Emanuel for mayor of Chicago and taking on the Chicago Democratic Party in the process. Laura Ravier is a fierce defender of public schools, strong supporter of the Chicago Teachers Union, and an opponent of charterization and privatization. His recent report exposes the nauseating and systemic racial discrimination in Chicago public schools, and he consistently attacks underinvestment and inequality in our system. We'll talk to La Ravier about his campaign, ideas, and his goals. All this on Jacobin Radio in just a moment. This is Susie Wiseman, and welcome to Jacobin Radio. And I'm very pleased to have Isidro López with us. He is a member of parliament in Spain with the party Podemos, and he is in the parliament, in the regional parliament in Madrid. He's also a sociologist and a writer. And I've asked him to join us today to discuss the Catalan referendum that is scheduled for October 1st, but was already declared illegal by Spain's central government and banned by the constitutional court after Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy said it violated Spain's 1978 constitution, which states the country is indivisible. Tens of thousands have gathered in Barcelona to protest, and the standoff between Catalonia and the central government in Madrid can resonate well beyond Spain. I thought we'd do no better than to get Isidro López with us and to get his take on the referendum, but more broadly on Spanish politics and on Podemos and nationalism and almost anything else we can think of. So with all of that, Isidro, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Hello. So why don't we just start with the issue and why it's an issue now and what the historical background is to it.
1: The territorial nationalist question in Spain is <laughs> been going on for almost 150 years or so. Some people will go even to 1714 the, like the start of the nationalist problem which is a bit exaggerated but we can say 150 years on a, on a long cycle and 40 years from the death of Franco until now in different cycles but it's always been there. It's a classical problem of the uh, the composition of the state in Spain. So why is it now yes. uh, arriving at this point? Let's say that there was, like after the Franco's death, an autonomous government was set up, which will pick up from the memory of the Third Republic. President Tarradellas will go back from the exile and will be nominated president. And afterwards, there was a long hegemony of the, what's called Catalanism, which is of a conservative, uh, nationalist form of uh, regionalism. You cannot be called independentism. Catalonia has to be said has both a strong history of uh, class struggles, particularly anarchists in the 20s, in the 1920s, 1930s, even before at the beginning of the 19th century, and also a strong bourgeois culture that is not present in the rest of Spain apart from the Basque Country and that defines the character of the region, right? It was one of the most early industrialized uh, regions of uh, Spain, and uh, in a way it was different from the rest of the country. And there was a bourgeois culture, it's not only uh, bourgeois in the sense of a capitalist ruling class, and that's different from the the rest of uh, Spain. So there was a moment which was key to what is happening now, and it was 2012 when the crisis hit hard catalonia Mm
0: -hmm.
1: catalonia wasn't wasn't anymore an industrial region but rather ingrained in the sort of real estate bubble mechanisms of the rest of spain and the crisis was massive right so there was a reaction to that crisis from the ruling catalanist conservative parties which sort of try to avoid responsibility from the crisis, going for an independentist uh, position. Of course, independentism was already present in Catalonia. They didn't invent it. But let's say that from a marginal position, it became central. Okay. And from 2012 until now, it has been growing and growing.
0: Well, I was going to ask Isidro Lopez is uh, what the driving force was. You began to talk about it with this surge of nationalism in Catalonia. And, and really, what's the relationship between that and, say, other political movements? You belong to Podemos, which is most identified with the working class and social justice struggles. And you mentioned, yeah. certainly, the way the press is covering this referendum. They're saying that, that most of the political parties in Spain oppose Catalonian independence. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about what's behind it, who's behind it, rather, and you know what mm-hmm. its relationship is with these other movements on the left. So.
1: Uh, it's actually quite complex, right? I mean, okay. of course, every single, let's say, what we call parties, or the two parties from the 78 regime, Socialist Party and the Popular Party, Conservative Party, they oppose the referendum, and also a force, a new force, which is called Ciudadanos, Mm-hmm. which actually sprang in Catalonia in order to oppose the nationalist independentist field and they are all against against the referendum inside catalonia let 's say that positions are locked fifty fifty of the population and let's say that of course there is like a bourgeois party side of uh, of independentism which is uh, is one of the drives of this new movement, there is also something we could call a working-class side to it, but Mm -hmm. mainly from outside the big cities, Mm -hmm. located like uh, small, medium-sized cities. Also, on the other side, let's let's say unionist side, there is both working-class, particularly from the outskirts of Barcelona, the metropolitan area of Barcelona, which is massive. In terms of population, but also there is classic right-wing opposition to it. So I would say both camps are pretty much transversal. This is not class struggle at all.
0: right I
1: mean, they are both two mixed camps, right? And Podemos, basically like a national, national, like a statewide party, is always been a bit out of the of the picture when it comes to Catalonia. First at the very beginning it tried to represent that sort of metropolitan proletariat of the outskirts of barcelona but then it became sort of uh, in between both positions which in a situation of polarization is not a good place to be it has to be said that the mayor of barcelona ala colau without being in podemos comes from barcelona which is one of the citizens candidatures that sprang out after Podemos was born. So it's very much linked.
0: Right, right. So
1: she's like the main visible figure in this crisis.
0: I wanted to just go right there, Isidro, because the mayor is well known now around the world as being a left-wing mayor, and this puts Mm -hmm. her right in the center of what you're saying is a very complex issue, that of nationalism, Mm -hmm. because that's, in one sense, you could say that prior to the present, that the struggle for Catalonian independence might be cast as a left-wing struggle. That may not be the case today, but on the other hand, there's, as I mentioned, I think in the intro, that this has resonance outside of Spain certainly Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland Mm -hmm. is looking at it. And there's crises Mm -hmm. all over Europe. I mean, there's the German elections coming up. We don't expect a lot of turmoil there, but we have in France, you know, demonstrations, gigantic demonstrations Mm -hmm. against the labor code. And Europe on the whole has been on the move, as we say, especially since 2011. So could you situate that now? Like, I know this is complex, Uh, but the position of the mayor and the sort of left and the, the issue of the referendum now, uh-huh. maybe you could just kind of give us the sort of overall perspective.
1: Uh, yeah. The relation of, the, let's say, anti-capitalist independencies, the CUP, uh, C-U-P, which is like the, the yes. main left-wing force in this movement, which actually are supporting the government in Catalonia, it's a classic let's say, third international national liberation position. It's first independence, and then we'll talk about social issues.
0: Okay. You know, in a
1: very classical way, right? First national question, then we'll go for, let's say, first identity, and then the material issues, which, of course, that's my opinion, hasn't been very successful in national liberation movements. But anyway, that's their position. There are many of the left, particularly in the rest of Spain and some in Catalonia, are supporting this referendum in terms of, let's say, uh, democracy and respect for basic freedoms.
0: And maybe even like. national self determination? Is that an issue?
1: Mm, mm, yes, but <laughs> it's not. It is for independence. The question is. Of course, right of self-determination, right. But also after the, the crisis and the M15 movement and after Greece, right? we cannot take sovereignty for granted. I mean, of course, there's European power, like overarching all this. The independence from a state might be a minor issue at the end of the day. Uh-huh. No minor political issue, but right. it's a minor material issue.
0: And what about, you started to say, Isidro López, something about how the left inside Barcelona and Catalonia are divided on this issue and how that relates to, let's say, larger discussions within Podemos and other actors in Spain who are not looking, you know, for another Rajoy government, but uh, something far to the left.
1: We have to understand that Podemos and the whole uh, 50 men indignados cycle, Podemos cycle, which is like two moments of the same moment opened up the crisis for the state. And uh, there are two main positions there. Now, referring to Catalonia,
0: okay. there are
1: some people who believe this is a continuation of this crisis, right? So right. We, we will have like the Indignados Podemos, nationalist territorial issue, which I think within the left right now it's possibly majoritarian. Mm-hmm. Well, there are three positions, actually. There is, like, let's say, left-wing ideological position, which would say this is no workers' movement. And there is a third position, in mm-hmm. which I would count myself, which would say this is the least... The Spanish state is perfectly trained to control these sorts of uh, nationalist expressions. It did it with the Basque country for 40 years. Isolating like Basque independentism, so sort of isolating it from the rest of the country. So there is very little solidarity in the rest of the country, in fact. And that's what it's going to try to do in Catalonia. And the thing is that in the rest of the country, it is very difficult to get like sort of mobilization on the basis of such an old problem.
0: Let's just dissect that a little bit. And what does it mean, say, you know, this position? Because as you say, this is something you share and that this independence movement, you know, was contained or isolated in the Basque country for a very long time. And now that's the position for Catalonia. But how does that resonate among those, let's say, who call themselves on the left, are looking for some form of socialism, democratic socialism, or social justice and yet think that this should come about through an independent Catalonia. Am I
1: getting that right?
0: Maybe you could explain it a little we, bit.
1: That, that really isn't on the menu, really. Okay. Apart from some, <laughs> let's say, very localized anti-capitalist sectors in the independence movement, it's rather a struggle for both inside and outside Catalonia, for the left, it's more in a struggle about democracy, which, of course, at the end of the day, will get to to the question of is is Catalonia going to be independent or not? But at this point, it's like okay, we the Rajoy government cannot keep blocking this referendum. Let's say that it is illegitimate the reaction against the Catalan people that want to vote, right? Mm-hmm. But It is not really, no one is actually, well, some people are, but it's not at all majoritarian or a majority of the left. It's actually thinking in terms of, let's say, a step towards socialism or even economic democracy in the most basic sense. We're talking here on one side, like an identity issue, whether it's Catalonia or Spain, are democracy and rights issues.
0: So... Isidro, maybe just for our listeners, you know, you've mentioned the crisis. We're talking about the economic crisis of 2007 and eight, and Spain was particularly Mm -hmm. hard hit. And we saw spectacular, as you've mentioned, demonstrations, occupations, indignado Mm -hmm. movement, and then Podemos Mm -hmm. grew out of that as the electoral expression of that mass Mm -hmm. movement. And now all of a sudden into the mix, or maybe not all of a sudden, the national question comes back in the form of this. And so I guess maybe for us... If you could just say something like, is this a response to uneven recovery from the crisis or continuing mass unemployment, or is it a situation where those in Catalonia are doing better and want to maintain that? I'm trying to get a better fix of... I
1: think, of course, there is, not, there is neither a situation of, let's say, full-fledged crisis as it was in 2011 or 2012, mm-hmm. but there is not either a situation of uh, sustained growth, not in Catalonia, not in the rest of Spain, <laughs> rather anemic growth. So let's say that inequality or uh, unemployment precariousness keep being a problem all over, either in Madrid or in Barcelona or in the rest of the country. But... I would say that that's not the driving force right now for what is happening right now, but rather some sort of uh, autonomy of the politics, with, mm-hmm. as questionable as this concept may be, which is a lot, but temporary autonomy. is much more linked to the dynamics of the Spanish state right? and the dynamics of how two years ago, when there were regional elections in Catalonia, there was a... A slight majority of the vote was independents, with a group which is a, an anti-capitalist party going to the government.
0: And did you say where the mayor of Barcelona stands on this and how she kind of balances this with the various forces inside?
1: What she did was to take it as a question of uh, democracy and freedom,
0: mm. right? Right.
1: And supporting it, saying I will vote in that referendum. Okay. Because the big problem of the referendum is engaging in the no vote. The uh, unionist position simply is not going to vote in that referendum.
0: Oh, they're boycotting. Okay. Of course. And do you think the The, referendum is going to go ahead even though it's been banned by the court and declared uh, illegal?
1: I don't know, really. It's it's becoming very, very difficult. I mean, the repression of the Spanish state is huge. Huge.
0: We've really mm-hmm. run out of time, but I find oh. this so interesting because what I'm getting from this, Isidro Lopez, is that it's just continued turmoil because there's no clear-cut solutions to what's a very complex, I guess, expression of, mm-hmm. of the political situation in Spain. Yeah, Okay, well, I guess we're going to have to leave it there. But but I'd like to call you back after if the referendum takes place, but also to get a, a sort of deeper look at the problems within Podemos and in the Spanish political situation, even as it relates to the rest of Europe and the world. No one more capable of doing that than you.
1: It would be a pleasure talking to you
0: again. Thank you so much, and I've been speaking with thank you, thank you with Isidro Lopez. He's a sociologist. He's also a member of the Parliament for the Party Podemos in Madrid, and we've been talking today from Madrid about the upcoming, perhaps, referendum for independence for Catalonia, which is at the center of turmoil in Spain and seems to be aiding, aiding outward. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Don't go away. Thank you so much, Isidro Lopez, for joining us today. This is Susie Wiseman, and you're listening to Jacobin Radio. Our next interview with Chicago mayoral candidate Troy La Ravier has excellent sound quality after the first two minutes. Please stick with it. It'll be worth it. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I am Susie Wiseman, and very pleased to have Troy La Ravier with us. He's the president of the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association, and he's put his hand in the mayoral contest in Chicago against Rahm Emanuel and by doing that taking on presumably the Chicago Democratic Party in the process. La Ravieza Fierce defender of public schools, a strong supporter of the Chicago Teachers Union. He's an opponent of the privatization or charterization of the schools. And he contends that schools are underfunded. He holds Rahm Emanuel as well as the state accountable. And if you look at his blog, which is TroyLaravier.net, he introduced a report on the nauseating and systemic racial discrimination in Chicago public schools. Well, that's kind of a lot, but welcome to Jacobin Radio. I am so pleased to have you here. You for being here. If you go to look at any of your appearances on YouTube, and you can see the comments on the side, I think Jesse Jackson says... That you're the best orator ever. And coming from him, that obviously says something. And it also, you know, well, I think it's a good place to start, but it means that, you know, in an interview that often doesn't come across, but what does come across in every single one of these interviews that you see online is that you've got good politics and you've got a lot of charisma. And I guess that brings us to this Chicago race. Maybe you could just say a little bit first about why you decided to run against.
2: So the campaign's not yet official. The news came out as a result of the fact that I've been asked quite a bit to run, and I began to take it seriously and put a team together to explore it. And when people come up to me or walk up to me, I often just have conversations with them about it, but I never actually took their names down. And I was with a political operative one day, and a guy walked up to us, and he recognized me, and he said, you're twelve, love you. I said yes, sir. He says, if you run for mayor, I'll knock on a thousand doors for you. And so I start talking to the guy like I normally do when this happens, and we end our conversation. And I go back over to the political operative, and he says, Did you get his information? And I said no. And he looked at me and says, If someone ever walks up to you again and says they'll knock on a thousand doors to you, don't let them leave you without getting their information. And so. I began a practice of collecting this information, and I created a form online for people to fill out when they reach out to me. A reporter got wind of this form uh, because someone got so excited that they published a link on their Facebook page to the form, and the reporter got wind of it and announced that Troy LaRavier was exploring a campaign for mayor. Uh, but we don't yet have a campaign apparatus up, there's no official organization. But I will clearly state that I am on that road, Uh, and barring some unforeseen roadblocks, at some point in the next six months I will be announcing that I will be running for mayor of Chicago in an effort to put that office back into the service of the people of the city.
0: And you heard it here for the first time. So your campaign is now public, so this gives you the opportunity, speaking to a larger audience, about what the campaign will be about. And I read your blog and your website, and it's very much concentrated on education and Most of us know about Chicago public schools from that exemplary Chicago teachers' strike just a few years ago. And what made it so exemplary was that it won the support of community, which is what needs to happen these days. And yet, Rahm Emanuel went ahead and still closed schools even after the victory and seemed tone deaf to the teachers. What do you have to say about that?
2: So... Being from education, coming from an educational perspective, I actually get to see what's wrong with the city beyond education. I was an assistant principal at one of the poorest and one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. And then I moved to become a principal in one of the richest neighborhoods in the city. And the kids at Johnson in the poor neighborhood would come to school on day one of kindergarten, two, three years behind the kids at Blaine in the wealthy community, Blaine School. And so it's day one of kindergarten, and you're already two years behind. How is that a failing school? And it's day one of kindergarten. right? These kids have been failed long before they ever reached a school system. They've been failed by their aldermen or city councilmen. They've been failed by their state rep. They've been failed by their mayor. They've been failed by a business community that failed to create enough jobs for the parents to have adequate income so that they can expose their children to things that stimulate cognitive development. And so as a principal, I have seen this failure outside the schools, the thing that really keeps children, keeps our city from being able to realize its fullest potential, because that's what a city is, it's people. If you don't realize the potential of the people, then you're not going to realize the potential of the city. And so the things that we typically blame schools for are actually the fault of a much larger set of actors, from the politicians to the business community uh, for example if you're in Lincoln Park in Chicago a fairly well-to-do community you have a zero percent chance of being exposed to lead paint mm-hmm. if you live in Austin a poor black community your chances of being exposed to lead paint are one in four and so as a result the schools in Austin have to deal with children who have been failed In that regard and have to deal with the cognitive difficulties that those children come into school with and as a result those children are at a disadvantage in terms of their ability to live up to their potential and contribute to our city and so if we want them to live up to their potential we're going to have to do something outside in addition to great schools we're going to have to create great neighborhoods great families great communities great jobs, great housing and so that's the perspective that I come at this with.
0: Well, I'm speaking with Troy Ravier and it's really quite refreshing to hear you say that. And, of course, it's also a tall order. And I wonder, given the moment that we're living in, now we're all already 10 years past the crash and crisis of 2007-8, and we still have communities that have not recovered, the real economy hasn't recovered. Do you think we're at a time to hear this message that maybe the privatization – Uh, ad nauseum is not the prescription to fix everything?
2: Absolutely. The evidence that we've been at that time since it began, we just haven't had the kind of voices at a local or national level that are beginning to emerge. And of course, the best example is the Bernie Sanders campaign. And that's much of what we want to accomplish with this campaign on the Chicago level. Take that unapologetically progressive, people-centered message. The That is that there are a group of wealthy parasites, and I don't think every wealthy person is a parasite, but there is a subset of them that are attempting to form, that are forming parasitic relationships between municipalities and the dollars that go into those, uh, the tax dollars that we invest in our municipalities. The tax dollars that we invest in our state and the tax dollars that we invest in our federal government, they're buying off politicians to allow them to create these parasitic relationships that send our money away from things that are supposed to serve us and toward things that enrich them. That has to begin. The examples abound. We need people out there that can articulate them, help people to understand them, And most importantly, show up to the polls and help people to vote out the flunkies and lackeys that continue to enable this kind of system.
0: This is really quite good, Troy LaRavie, and I wonder how much resonance this kind of open, honest, direct politics has in Chicago, and what kind of support you're getting. You mentioned that you haven't really announced, but it got away from you, and it got announced more or less for you, not formally, but... It's out there. So tell me about who you think your constituency of support is. Is it going to be from the unions, from the communities, from everybody and what do you think your chances are?
2: And so again, when I walked into that coffee shop with that political operative, the guy who walked up to me and said he'd knock a thousand doors for me was a union laborer. If I remember, he was a construction worker. What brought me into the public eye was when I was a principal, I wrote an essay basically outing our CEO and our mayor for their corrupt practices in running our school district. And no one had ever seen a sitting principal risk his or her livelihood in order to stand up for kids and stand up for the end of corruption in our district. But I had seen enough. And one of the first people to reach out to me was a firefighter who sent me a message saying that you run for me and I'll get a thousand cops and firefighters to knock doors. Mm. And so The firefighter, the construction worker, and teachers in Chicago, by far, know my work more than any other group of people because I've risked so much to defend them and what they do for our schools. Uh, I think parents are also a big constituency. I think anyone who cares about the future of this city cares about making it more just. And even folks who are not yet part of that constituency, I think once they hear the message... Once they hear the message of connection, of the need to invest in every single child in every single neighborhood and every single community and how that investment comes back to help us all. I think once that message comes out, I don't know if there's a constituency I won't have outside of the constituency that continues to benefit from this parasitic relationship they've established with our tax dollars.
0: You've mentioned Rahm Emanuel and exposing him and the head of the teachers, what is it, the board, and their corrupt practices on funding schools. Can you say a little bit about what happened to Chicago schools after Rahm Emanuel started closing them and what the pushback has been?
2: His pattern hasn't changed before the closing after the closing. He's always been about privatization. He's always been about steering our money that's supposed to go toward services for our children and our streets and our community and taking that money and sending it towards some private interests. For example, the first essay I put out was about Barbara Bird Bennett, a uh, CEO of Chicago Public Schools, who is now in prison for a bribery scheme. She took $23 million of school money and invested it in a corporation that she used to work for, basically created this contract with him. In exchange for that $23 million contract, they gave her $2.3 million on the side. It was a bribery scheme. And it never came out from CPS. CPS and the mayor's office never went after her for this. When I published the first essay, a reporter picked up on it and published a more in-depth essay, and that led the Justice Department to investigate, and then eventually they indicted her. But Rahm Emanuel, the man who appointed her, the office who appointed her, mm-hmm. never followed up, never took action against her. It took outside federal intervention in order to get this woman out, but she was just doing what she had been taught to do by the office that appointed her. For mm-hmm. example, our custodial services have been privatized to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Right after the privatization contract went through, one of the agencies that got the contract donated a quarter million dollars to Romney Emanuel's re-election campaign. And these are just a couple of examples. The Chicago Tribune published a front page story in January of 2015 where they showed that Romney Emanuel's 60 of his top 100 campaign contributors, all of them got some kind of benefit from a city contract or city appointment. In order to again siphon off the resources that are generated by our tax dollars, take them away from things that are supposed to serve our people and toward things that enrich their bank accounts, see this is front page of the Chicago Tribune, and they just followed that up a couple of weeks ago showing that those same contributors are behind his second reelection campaign that that 's where he 's getting most of his money from.
0: I'm speaking with Troy La ravier and he is talking about the reasons that he is now putting his hand in the race for mayor of Chicago. And you've mentioned just the education aspect, but also some of the other things that happen in this country, that the political class doesn't invest in the population and doesn't see them as a source for investment, and therefore you have the results that we do. But... It's not just the privatization, but it's also the brutality. And Chicago has come into the news so much now because of the violence against black community and the horrific sort of systemic racism of the police force. What is your take on that?
2: So I see it a lot like I see schools, particularly in how teachers are treated. They come at teachers a lot with this accountability perspective. And accountability, I've nothing against accountability but accountability is the tail's end of a two-sided coin. The other side of that coin is capacity building. Right? You can't hold someone. It's backward to try and hold someone accountable for something you haven't given them the support to do. But that's the approach with education, that we just kind to hold teachers accountable but not invest anything in building their capacity to do what it is we expect them to do. And you have to have both. And I think the same thing in relationship to at least the police violence, that we have to hold officers accountable for the action, but we also have to give them the support and training that they need in order to meet the standards that we set to them. And this administration isn't doing either one of those things. And in terms of the larger systemic violence on the streets, I mean, this is what happens when you don't invest in people. Mm. Uh, and so we have to invest in people.
0: Can you say something? Invest
2: in families, invest in communities, invest in neighborhoods. People have to have a way. Much of this comes from groups of people who are gathered together to create alternative means of making money, otherwise known as gangs, alternative means of supporting themselves and the people they love. They're driven to create alternative means because the existing means are inadequate. We have to ensure that the existing means are adequate.
0: Finally, because we don't have a lot of time left, and I know that you were a supporter of Chuy Garcia the last time around, and that seemed like a race that, you know, really did give Rahm Emanuel a run for his money, and perhaps money is the right word to use there. There don't seem to be term limits in Chicago. One is, what is the coalition that you're going to kind of bring together behind your campaign, and how do you run up against the money interests that will surely pour into Rahm's campaign?
2: Well, I think, one we build an army there's the power of organized money and there's the power of organized people and so we absolutely have to organize people so we have to build an army but even more importantly, one of the things we didn't have in the Garcia campaign was a message we did not have much of a message beyond Rom's horrible I think the biggest talking point of the Garcia campaign was a thousand new cops who's that going to inspire right Part of that may have been the result of the fact that the campaign got such a late start. So I don't want to fault truly or the campaign but and, and not recognize the obstacles they had to deal with in terms of the very short turnaround. They had like three months when they got started. But So we have to have a message. We have to have that army. And I think if we have that message and we have that army, we're going to generate enough money. And we're certainly going to turn out enough votes. Frankly, I believe that, you know, Truly forced a runoff. Now, I don't think there's going to be a runoff. I think I can, and I believe I will beat him outright if I run. There won't be a need for a runoff. He's gone.
0: Okay. Well, you heard it here, and I want to thank you so much for joining us and letting us in in the early days about the army that you're going to build to beat. Rahm Emanuel, for mayor of Chicago. I'm speaking with Troy LaRavie, and you can read his blog and everything about him, his incredible journey so far, at troylaravier.net. And he is the president of the Chicago Principals and Administrators Association, and he's taking on the Chicago Democratic Party and Rahm Emanuel. Thanks so much for joining us, Troy.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Suzy Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.